So it's great a privilege for me to be with you again. I was here a number of years ago, um, and at that time I, I spoke on Matthew 28, the resurrection from Matthew's Gospel. I guess this time I haven't moved very far away from Matthew 28, but I've been expanding a little bit around the boundaries. But um, I hope, uh, uh, for those of you who remember those talks vividly from Matthew 28, I hope there'll be a little, things will be a little bit different for you today. In this little brochure, you'll find uh, outlines of what I will be saying. I hope that's of some help to you. Um, let me just find my material. Let me explain to start with what I, I hope we're going to be doing. I want to look with you this week, this week, today, in, with um, three key events at the end of Jesus' life. Uh, once I got down here, I realised I promised Chris something more than I'm going to deliver today. On the front it says, Crucifixion, an Empty Tomb and a Resurrection. I actually started from the resurrection end of things and worked backwards. I never actually got to the crucifixion, so there's a little bit of false advertising. If, um, if you think, if you've come along, especially here about the crucifixion day, I apologise, we're not going to get there. We're going to be looking at the burial, the empty tomb and the resurrection. Um, and perhaps uh, if you really do, would like, if you really would like to talk about the crucifixion, there's a topic for another forum on another occasion. Yeah. <laughs> Today I want to look at these the events that took place after Jesus died. His burial, the discovery of the empty tomb, and then him appearing to other people as alive from the dead. There is more than enough in these events to keep us busy today, I think. Now as we look at them, we're going to look at them from several of these events, each, each of them from several different angles. Firstly we'll look at the story, that is just how the Gospels tell us about these events. But then I want to look at the history. If these events are going to be lessons for our life, we need to know that they're true. And so I want to look at these events from the perspective of a historian. Uh, it, it has been popular over the years for sceptics about Christianity to attack the Gospels for being full of contradictions. I don't know whether you've noticed that in, in recent days in Australia we've got a rising tide of angry atheists um, through our press and everywhere. It got to the stage a couple of months ago where I noticed in the Sydney Morning Herald, which I should add was started by a Christian family in Sydney, but has gone a long way from those roots, but I noticed in reading the Saturday Sydney Morning Herald that I think in three different places uh, I was told that the Bible and the Gospels in particular are full of contradictions. And it, got, it got to the ridiculous stage where one of these places was in a film review and I couldn't really see what it had to do with the film but apparently this was what the, uh, the author of the film review wanted to tell me. So because it, it, it's, it's been popular amongst the sceptics for years and, and especially today as well, to say that the Gospels are full of contradictions, I wanted to do this experiment with you today to help you to see that, in fact, I think that's false. And as these particular accounts uh, have been focused in upon, the burial, the resurrection, uh, and the appearance accounts, have been, we've been, as the sceptics say, especially these accounts, above all others, are so full of contradictions, they can't be true, you see. Now, I want to say the opposite today. Um, yes, there are differences, but I want to try and show you they can be read nicely together and yes, in fact, they are history, right? So we're going to look at it from, as, from the point of view of the story, from the point of view of the history, and then, of course, these uh, accounts are very, very special accounts 
because they're telling us something about God. That is, they're about their theology, the study of God, the word about God. So I want to look at what do they teach us about God and his purposes in our world and our lives. And finally, draw some life lessons from these uh, various angles. Okay? So that's the, the angles we're looking at each of the events um, together today. Um, I want to add also a word about our, our first two Bible readings. There will be one, don't, don't worry, we'll be, have a Bible reading in each, each session. But there's a little bit, it's a little bit unusual in our first two Bible readings as well. I've asked four of our number to read the account of the burial and the discovery of the empty tomb in the next session uh, that is found in each of the Gospels. That is, we're going to hear a Bible reading, four Bible readings, um, one from, from each of the accounts. The unusual thing, which I think you'll notice, is we're going to read them at the same time. So be warned. It's an early warning to have not just stereo listening on, but stereo times two. And I think you'll find this is a very interesting experiment. Now why do this? Again, it's been fashionable to say that these accounts contradict each other because of their differences. I think when you hear them together, you'll be surprised. So that's, that's what I'm hoping will happen. And maybe we can uh, give us something to talk about over morning tea or lunch. You can say, no, that didn't work at all. Uh, please don't blame me. my Bible readings. It was my idea. My Bible readers, it was my idea. So come and talk to me about it. I want you to hear the story of our four Gospels all at the same time. I think you'll hear the differences, but I think you'll also hear a strong message of similarity. Okay. So to begin with, well, before we get to our Bible reading, I'll just tell you the story of the burial. Um, and this is basically Mark's account of the burial. Um, but but uh, then we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about um, the other Gospels as we go on. The story of the burial is quite simply told um, and it's, quite, it's told quite starkly by each of the four Gospels. It's a very slim line account, if you like. Uh, I guess there's not much you can say about a burial, so, so you know, it's not, not an elaborate story, but it's told very, very simply. There are important differences. The basic facts, however, come through um, loudly and clearly. Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, that is the council that condemned Jesus to death, went to Pilate and requested the body of Jesus. It was unusual in the normal course of things for a crucified body to be given to anybody. Usually it hung on the cross until it rotted, was eaten by the crows or whatever. But it was very unusual to, to hand bodies back to relatives or friends. However, things were different in Israel. The Jews had a law, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23 is the law, that said that if anyone was hung on a tree, they needed to be taken down before sunset. And so the Jews had struck a, a deal, it seems, with the Romans to go against the normal Roman practice of leaving bodies hanging upon the cross so that they might be taken down and not to bring a curse upon the land, which is what the Jews thought. And so here we have Joseph of Arimathea going and requesting the, uh, the body of Jesus and he receives permission. Uh, it was especially important for Jesus' body not to stay upon the, the cross at this stage because the next day was the Sabbath day and it was a special time of the Passover and so in a sense it was a holy day twice over. So to have a, a body hanging on the cross would not be a good thing from the Jewish perspective. Pilate was surprised to learn that Jesus was already dead but he called in the centurion who had charge of the crucifixion, interrogated him, a uh, bit of a performance review on behalf of the centurion, uh, and they found that the Jesus was in fact dead, so he granted the body to Joseph, who wrapped it in a linen cloth 
and placed it in a tomb. So that's our story. It's nice and simple and streamlined um, and that's basically the event that we're going to be talking about in this first session. Okay. And what I'd like to do now is invite our uh, four Bible readers to come up and read um, the account of the, read the accounts of the burial to us. So we're going to read the burial of Jesus. And after these things, when it was getting laid, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day just before the Sabbath, a rich man from Arimathea arrived, called Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the council, and a good and righteous man. This man had not agreed with the council and their action. From Arimathea, a city of Jews, he too follows the Jews of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, who was also himself waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. This man boldly, after gaining an audience with Pilate, and asked for, Pilate for the body of, Jesus. body of Jesus. But Pilate wondered whether he would be dead so soon, and he summoned the centurion and interrogated him about whether he had already died. And after learning the facts from the centurion, then Pilate ordered the corpse to be given to Joseph. And after buying a little cloth, and Nicodemus also came, one, the one who first came to Jesus by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 55 kilograms in weight, and taking the body of Jesus down and bound it. He rolled it up in a clean wrapping cloth with aromatic spices, just as is customary for the Jews to prepare for burial. Now, there was in that place where they crucified him a garden, and in the garden a new tomb which no one had ever been made before. Because it was the day of Jewish preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, and they had laid it in a long tomb, which he had cut in at a bedrock, belonging to nobody yet lying there. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was drawing near, and after rolling a great stone to the door of the tomb, he departed. And there, the accompanying women and the other travelers in the company with him from Galilee were sought the tomb, and how they buried the body, and after going home they prepared spices and ointments, and on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. One of the things you can do is try and work out which man was which gospel uh, gospel writer. Okay. Um, well, how did it, would anyone like to respond to that reading? What do you think of that reading? Just any, any reactions? What, what, what struck you or impressed you? Yeah. It's right to hear voices chiming in and filling the, the details in, don't you? Okay, now, that's what we're going to be looking at, the burial. Um, it'll get a little bit hard, I think, if, if, you've, if you've got your Bible open in front of you, please have it open in front of you. Um, I'll be going across all four Gospels, so I'll tell you when I, when I go, you know, you might want to flip over there, but it might be a little bit tricky for you. Um, it's easy for me because I've got a book up here that has all four Gospels together. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I've got an easy task. Let's think about the history. 
Now, under, under the, um, each one, I'll, I've got a number of points that I want to make. So here there's five points under the history, um, uh, A to B. So here's the first. What I'm going to try and do now is to spin the story to show how I think the events took place when we, when we stitched it all together. Um, one of the things that, that a historian wants to look at is a thing called multiple attestation. That is, if an event took place, uh, if you've got lots of sources telling you that it took place, that multiplies the chances that it did take place. Okay? Different writers saying the same thing. Now, in the New Testament, we actually do have the burial of Jesus multiply attested. That is, we have a number of different sources talking about Jesus' um, burial. It's there in Acts chapter 13, verse 29. So that's one source. It's there in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 4. That's another source. That's Paul. Uh, and it's there in our four Gospels. So the way the scholars count that, it's either three sources or six sources, but either way you count it, um, it ends up being multiple attestation that Jesus was buried. Okay. Now when you then look at the sources, um, this is where we also, the next thing the historian wants to do is to see whether the historians speak, whether the sources speak with the same voice. And this is often where the skeptic says, no, they don't. They're so contradictory that they can't be about the same event. And they're just, you know, it's obviously a, a fabrication. But what we can do is to listen to the sources more carefully. And um, what, what we need to be listening for is what I call, uh, it's called historical veracity. That's a big, you know, a big technical term. But it basically means the ring of truth. As you listen to these sources, we want to ask, where did the story come from? So who was the basic reporter behind the events? And as we listen to what they have to say, uh, does it sound, does it have the ring of truth? Does it sound psychologically and historically uh, like it actually happened? And what we listen for here is things like, um, you know, details that show that someone's actually remembering something. And often it's something like something emotional. That they remember the fear that they had or something like that. And that so it's not, it, it sounds a little bit different from just a made up story or an artificial thing. You, you, it actually has the ring of truth that a real person encountered something real here. Okay. So I'm going to be doing all this kind of thing with you as we go through. Here's my first point under the history. The burial took place at evening. Uh, now this is just a little bit, it's a little too late in a sense, because this meant the Sabbath had already begun for the Jews. And so it was a pressured time. It was a special day, the day of preparation for the Passover. All four Gospels, at this point, they, they, they recognise the time, and they focus in upon a man called Joseph of Arimathea. They tell us that he was a man, a member of the council that put Jesus to death. And we all, they also tell us, but here's a, they tell us in different words, but they also tell us that he was some kind of disciple of Jesus. Mark tells us that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Luke says the same thing. John and Matthews actually used the term disciple, and so that he was a disciple of Jesus. And then John adds that he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. So he was a disciple in secret. And according to Luke, he had not consented to the council's decision to put Jesus to death. So he was that much of a disciple that he didn't want Jesus to die. Okay, and he said no when they cast their death, their, their, um, uh, their votes. Now evidently, it seems to me quite clear that Joseph is the eyewitness behind this account. He's the one who's given us the story. 
And as we listen to the story again, you can hear uh, some of his reminiscences coming through. Okay, so that's the second point. The, 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 who, the, took, the first point took place at evening, uh, and it was Joseph who's the, the source behind this. The second point, Joseph goes to, to, to Pilate and asks for the body. Um, if, for example, in Mark's account, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate. Now why are we told that he took courage? He remembers what it took the governor of the land to go and ask for a condemned criminal who had just been put to death as a political revolutionary. He remembers that feeling of sitting outside the headmaster's office, <laughs> waiting uh, for the audience with the great one, uh, the great Pilate. He took courage. Now Mark also reports that Pilate had a preliminary inquiry before granting permission. Notice verse 44, Pilate wondered if he were already dead and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. This would have taken time. Joseph is sitting there, waiting for the outcome of this inquiry, as Pilate grills the centurion, whose job it was to ensure that people died. Uh, that was, he, was, he was the head of the death squad. And so Pilate, um, a military commander, grills his centurion, another military commander, to find out whether, whether the victim truly was put to death. Joseph is walking up, up and down in the corridor, waiting for permission at this time. He remembers the tense time this was. Eventually, he was granted permission. And so uh, we, we, we read that he, uh, in verse uh, 45, when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, Pilate granted the body to Joseph. There's the second thing. The third thing is that what did, Pilate, what did sorry, Joseph do with it then? Well, he bought a linen shroud and take, uh, he bought a linen shroud and wrapped the body. This is true to life as well. It comes through in all our sources, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it's true to life. Proper burial required at least the rudiments of a covering for the body. It's, it's true enough of ordinary life. If, if, if Joseph was just a pious Jew, this is what he would have done. If he had no connection with Jesus, he would have done this to wrap the, the body base in a basic sheet before burial. But because he was a secret disciple, it's even, in a sense, even truer to show respect for one that you had some attachment to. Of course you would want to wrap their body and give them some kind of decent body, decent burial. And so he took the body down and wrapped it in a sheet, we read, which he bought. But at this point in the story, we have another eyewitness chipping in. So if you wanted to turn to John for that story, you can see in John 19, 38 and 39, it tells us about Nicodemus. And this is, this is the point where we had one solitary voice uh, reading to us in this, in this account. Nicodemus comes into the story. We read in John chapter 19, and verse 38 and 39, that uh, Nicodemus also, who had first come to him by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 55 kilograms in weight. Nicodemus was that man who came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3 and they had that brilliant conversation about you must be born again. Nicodemus didn't understand. He turned up again in John chapter 7 when the arrest party had gone out to get Jesus but, um, and they'd come back saying without Jesus and uh, the high priest said, what are you, where is your, the person you've seen out to get? And they said, never has this man, never has anyone spoken like this man. 
And then they got stuck into the, the guards and said, well, why didn't you do your job? And Nicodemus then stood up and said something which tried to uh, allow Jesus to have a fair trial. And then they got stuck into him. Have you, tell us, where, have you ever read that a prophet's going to come from Galilee? So he's been around a bit in John's Gospel and then he turns up at this burial scene as well. With this myrrh and aloes, 55 kilograms, that's quite a bit. This is a proper burial, not just a rudimentary burial. He has the perfumes that are needed to put uh, to, to do the, 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 basically the mummification process that they used in the ancient world. It's a whole heap of perfumes. Now here, if you ask the question, who t- who's telling us this story? This is evidently Nicodemus as our eyewitness. He's telling his side of the story. He had bought those uh, spices. He knew exactly how much they weighed because he would have had to pay for them by weight. So here's a reminiscence, a historical reminiscence. And he brings these spices to help Joseph with the burial according to Jewish custom. So it makes good sense here. It makes good sense too that these two men knew each other. Both were prominent Jews, members of the council. They had both been attracted to Jesus but remained secret disciples of Jesus. But somehow they would found each other. And they were both secret disciples because they were afraid of their Jewish colleagues who, who, who weren't happy with what Jesus was doing. And so it makes sense that they would have known each other, but for the same reasons, it is highly unlikely that they had previously hooked up with Jesus' other disciples. The ones who had come down from Galilee, the ones that he'd gathered in Jerusalem. These were secret disciples. They hadn't hooked up with the mainstream disciple group. And so they were unknown to them. These two men had been in the council when it voted to put Jesus to death. We know that uh, Joseph did not vote against Jesus at that point, and presumably we can presume the same about Nicodemus, although we don't know, how much they must, it must have grieved them to see that Sanhedrin cast their vote against Jesus so that he might be crucified. But at least now they can do a, a final act of devotion to the one that they've got to know and love a little bit from a distance, and they can bury Jesus according to the Jewish customs. It also makes sense that Joseph had a companion. So this insight from John's Gospel helps us. Lifting the dead weight of a a corpse off the cross would not have been an easy thing to do. To have two men doing it makes it much more realistic. Here we learn that Joseph had the help of Nicodemus and the two men took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth that Joseph had bought and the spices that Nicodemus had supplied and this all has the ring of truth about it, as we do this, this, uh, this account. Okay, what happened next? Point D. Then they laid the body in a tomb. This was just down the hill. Jesus crucified on the top, not too far away, they laid the body in a tomb. We read in all four Gospels, it was a tomb that had been hewn out of the rock. In fact, according to Matthew, it was Joseph's own tomb. That's why he knew he could use it. He'd made it. He'd constructed it. It was his. Nicodemus, in John's account, adds the detail that it was was in a garden. That is, it was in a walled enclosure. And again, these reports have the ring of truth. A rock-hewn tomb with a round, wheel-like door that had to be rolled in front of it. These are details that have been, been remembered. 
Conveniently, there was a place to lay him near at hand, known to Joseph because it was his tomb. It had somewhat, uh, some, some amount of secrecy to it because it was a, in a garden, a walled enclosure. And here these two secret disciples could perform a final act of discipleship in, in semi-public as they laid him in a tomb, uh, Joseph's own tomb. It has the ring of truth about it. My next point, E, what happens next? The burial accounts then end with a look at another group of people and the viewpoint changes. So at the end of the account in, in Mark we read uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Or in Luke, the women who had come from Galilee, with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. So there's another group of women here, another group of witnesses here, who are the women. And the viewpoint changes. The group of women who had followed Jesus from Jerusalem, sorry, from Galilee to Jerusalem, friends and relatives had watched, these, this group had watched the crucifixion from a distance. Uh, in, in all four Gospels, at the crucifixion account, these women are, are mentioned, and in three of the Gospels, they're named. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, uh, also known as Salome. So these women are named. They're known to the early uh, church and the, the, some of their sons are as well. So they're mentioned by name. Uh, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, in John's Gospel, is called Mary, the wife of Cleopas, or Clopas. So we also know her husband, and that will become important later in our, in our day to day. You see, these are, these are women who come from Galilee, up north. We also know from the crucifixion account Jesus' own mother was there. Remember how he looked down in John chapter 19 and said to John, Behold your mother. And then John took uh, Mary to his house from that hour. So, so these women are named, they're known to, they're known to the gospel uh, writers and readers to some extent. Now these women are strangers in town. They're from up north. They wouldn't have met the two Jewish counsellors, Nicodemus and Joseph, before. And they had watched from a distance the crucifixion, and they, they, they must have been watching the, 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 uh, uh, their relative, their friend on the cross, um, watching over him, as often happened with crucifixion, uh, to scare away the birds, if nothing else. A horrible way to die, crucifixion. And then they saw these two men, two strange men to them, they didn't know who they were, take the body down, wrap it in a cloth, and take it to a tomb where they laid his body. And so we read, from their perspective, they were sitting opposite the grave and they noticed where the body was laid. Now this was their, this obviously, their, this is going back to their eyewitness testimony. And once again, their testimony has the ring of historical so there's, there's what I want to say about history. It seems that I, uh, I don't know whether I've convinced you, but it seems you can read the account quite nicely. Uh, there are differences, but they come together quite nicely. And as you look at it, we can identify uh, sources behind the account, and we can, identify, we can hear the ring of truth in what these eyewitness sources tell us. Jesus really was buried. Okay. Now, so what? What's the significance of that? Now what I want to try to do now is just think about uh, the theology behind the burial of Jesus. 
in each of this, in, in this little segment in each of my talks, I just want to quickly try and think about what the event tells us about our God uh, and about his purposes in the world. And as I'm doing this, what I'm really asking is, does the New Testament make anything of this event? Does it tell us anything further? Sometimes what you find is something happens in Jesus' life and you can go to the epistles and you can find them reflecting upon that event uh, and telling us the theological significance of it, what it tells us about God. Um, and that's what I'm going to be doing. Of course, if it's the death of Jesus, the crucifixion, the, the letters are talking about the death of Jesus all the time, so there's lots of reflection upon that event. It may surprise you to find there's some reflection upon the burial of Jesus as well and the empty tomb, and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll progress through that as well. So, there's the history. Uh, let's have a look at the theology. What's the theology behind the burial of Jesus? That is, what does his, this burial tell us about God and God's purposes for the world? We know that it was a significant event because it forms part of the earliest account of what happened. Say, Paul's preaching in Acts chapter 13, verse 29, tells us about that Jesus was buried. And in 1 Corinthians 15, and verses 3 to 4, this is an early creed, and there we read that Jesus died and was buried. So it's part of a confession of faith to say that Jesus was buried. So what does this burial of Jesus tell us about God? And what does this burial of Jesus tell us about ourselves as we are caught up in the purposes of God? That's my question. Okay. Now here I've also got five points, A to E. The first thing to notice about burial is, is something about us. Burial is a sad fact of human life. A sad fact of human life. It speaks of the end of our life. And when the time comes, there is nothing more pressing in urgency than burying a friend or a relative. Have you ever noticed that? You know, you hear of a friend or a relative who's died, it's always sudden. It always interrupts your regular routine. You've got to make arrangements for the kids. You've got to make arrangements for what other things you are doing because it's time to bury someone. So it presses in upon human life, this sad event. And we never think of saying, oh, how inconvenient. Why did they die right now? <laughs> you know? uh, but we always sort of feel that in a way, don't we? Uh, burial is a sad fact of human life that presses in upon us. Now, I, this, this comes through... Uh, so we're going to go, to, to look at the theology, we're going to go beyond the, the passages that we're um, focusing upon. And this, press, this comes through, remember when Jesus was, in Matthew chapter 8, um, Jesus was, was uh, early in his ministry. There was a great crowd around him and uh, he, he began to get various responses to him. And one of those responses in Matthew chapter 8 verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus replied to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's a very strange saying. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What we see though with this young man, I'm assuming he's young, this, this disciple, Roman, uh, Matthew 8.28, is that the pressing urgency of burying his father. The Messiah has arrived in Israel. I want to follow him, but I've got to bury my father first. This is a, a, a regular, the burial is a, a sad fact of the fabric of human life. It's one of, one of the things that binds us together as families, as communities. It's the opportunity to remember with gratitude the contribution that up, of the other, person, the other person has made to our lives. 
And there is a priority and, a, and an urgency, a propriety about um, burial. It's, it's a proper thing to do, to want to bury people, uh, and to especially want to bury your family, so, so members. So when he says, let me bury my father, this is one of the highest social duties, to bury your father properly, especially if he's the eldest son. Okay. Every society has the way of doing this properly. And if someone's not buried properly, we, we recognise it's a tragedy. Okay. So we know that it's a, a high order social priority, and yet Jesus says, leave the dead to bury the dead. Okay. And he calls this person to follow him. Also, we recognise the urgency about it. Um, it's, it's something that we can't control when someone dies. We can't control uh, when someone needs to be buried. And that's so with this man here. I want to follow you, Jesus, but let me bury my father first. It reminds me of the Anglican funeral service that says, has a line that says, in the midst of life, we are in death. Death always comes into the midst of life as a, as a tragic interruption. There's my first point. Burial, a sad fact of human life. Um, that, that might not sound like it's about God, but it's getting somewhere. <laughs> the second thing, the second point under this heading, the second thing to notice is that burial brings us to the brink of life's greatest mystery. What lies beyond the grave has been a great mystery for human beings forever. The afterlife has always been simply a, a matter of guesswork for centuries of, people, of communities and of people. How do you know what lies beyond the grave? How would you know what lies behind the grave, beyond the grave? The writer of the Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 20-21, meditated upon this, and he asked the question, are we just like the animals that perish, and when we die, their carcass rots, our carcass rots, and we're exactly the same? What makes the difference between a human being and an animal, he asks. What happens when someone dies? One of life's greatest mysteries. How can a human being so vigorous with life and laughter and love suddenly be lifeless and lost? And what happens then? Where do they go? Did that life that we once knew soar away to, does it soar away to realms unknown? Or, as the Ecclesiastes preacher asks, are we just like the beasts and we rot in the ground and that's it? And the question that's asked by the ancient preacher of Ecclesiastes echoes the mystery and the tragedy that's expressed in countless gravestones that have survived from centuries before ours. The question, who really knows, comes through over and over again. And what comes through on these gravestones is things like politics can't help us. In the ancient world, even religion had no answers. Uh, and according to ancient writers, when it comes to the grave, even the gods can't help us. They've abandoned us in our loss. As one gravestone puts it, why sigh for our dead sons when not even the gods have power to protect their children from death? Do you know anything about the Greek myths? Now the gods couldn't even stop their own children from being put to death. So they're no hope for us when we lose our sons. And another gravestone puts it this way, truly there is nothing anyone can do in the face of such things. So there we are, when we bury, it's a sad fact of human life. And the second thing to notice is that the, what lies beyond the grave has always been a great mystery for human beings. How do we know? How can we know? And I still um, find this every now and again with uh, you know, our 
an occasional atheistic friend or an unbelieving friend who says to me, well, how would you know no one's ever come back to tell us, right? The Aussie way of putting it very simply. I mean, the answer to that is, well, there has been one, but we'll get to that later in the day. But the question is, how do you know no one's ever come back to help us? The third thing, point C, the third thing to notice is how Jesus brings a radically new perspective on burial. Listen again to how he answered that man in Galilee, back in chapter 8, verse 22. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What an amazing saying that is. Um, a lot of people get caught up with the Sermon on the Mount, the beauty of the ethical instruction Jesus gives there. I find a lot of the other sayings really much more, in a sense, much more fascinating because they're so stark, simple, and they seem to be saying something so radical. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. What does that mean? I mean, how do the dead do that, you might ask? Uh, What's Jesus on about here? What what I think it's getting at is he brings a radical new perspective on burial. What could be a higher duty for this man than the duty to bury his father? In the ancient world, none. That is everything that he had to do at that moment. If he'd gone off and run his business for the day, he would have been treated with disrespect by everybody in the community. His job is to bury his father. Um, This is the highest social duty he could have had. But Jesus says, no, leave the dead, bury their own dead and follow me. What a radical thing he's calling for this man to do. Now this, I think, shows us a couple of things. Firstly, and this is where the theology starts coming into it, what it says about God. Um, Think about the claim that Jesus is making. He is saying that he has a higher claim on this man than the social duty to bury his father. There's only one person in the world who has a higher claim at this point. Who would that be? God himself. So when Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead and follow me, it's an indirect claim to him being God. Like so many of Jesus' claims to be divine, they're indirect, but they're very, very clear. Come and follow me. You notice, the ur- notice also the, the urgency the young man feels, now is the time to bury my father. Jesus provides another urgency. No, there's actually a, a far more urgent and pressing duty you have, that is to follow me, because the kingdom of God is at hand. He's already been pre- preaching that in Matthew's Gospel. Now I don't think what Jesus is saying is that uh, you know, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus you must n- never bury your family members, ever. This is a special thing that happened at that particular time. His arrival in Israel brought a strange new time to, the, to, to Israel, to the first century of our world. The Kingdom of God was near, it was urgent, and he called upon this man to follow him, breaking with the social convention, even such a high one, as um, burying his father. But let's just press on one more thing about this little saying. Listen again to this weird saying, leave the dead to bury their own dead. What does this mean? It indicates something about Jesus' direction in life. If you hang around burying your father, that's the duty of the dead at this point, he's saying. And it shows that his direction is towards life. He's come to bring life rather than just the duties associated with death. And this is indicated in the very next story in Matthew chapter 8 when they, they hop in the boat to cross the sea and they're involved in a huge storm. And uh, he's asleep on a cushion. But they wake him up and they say in 8, chapter 8 verse 25, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. 
And what does he do? He saves them. <coughs> he's come to save people from perishing. He's come to save people from the grave. What he's on about is life from the dead, not hanging around with the dead. And that's the urgency of the situation that he's brought um, to, the, to, to Israel at that time. So, this is, so when he, when he uh, saves them from perishing on, on the sea, it raises the question, what sort of a man is this? They ask, 8.27. He demands a higher loyalty, even beyond burying the father. This is because he is the one who's come to bring life where there's death. He has come to save the perishing. And who can possibly do that? Well, there's some sayings in, amongst the Greeks again. The gods can't do that. In fact, there was a, a natural historian writing, um, writing, which we might call an evolutionary scientist nowadays, writing in the midst of at exactly the same time Jesus was, was preaching in Israel. He was writing in Greece, a guy called Pliny, and he actually said, thinking about God, that there were several things that God couldn't, that even God couldn't do. And one of the things that he said was he couldn't raise the dead. Well, here we have Jesus claiming something. He's come to save the perishing. Apparently he thinks he can do something about the dead. My fourth point, point D. Once you are buried, this is probably my most profound thought for the day, once you're buried, it's usually permanent. Okay. Once you're buried, it's usually permanent. But for Jesus, it wasn't. Uh, it is not important Sorry, it is, it's important for Jesus to be buried as the first half of a great contrast. That is, he needed to be buried in order to be resurrected. And we're only looking at the burial side of this talk, but it was important for him to be buried uh, in order for the great contrast to happen that he might be raised from the dead. Now this comes out in Acts chapter 2, which we're going to spend a bit of time with later in the, in the day. But in Acts chapter 2, verse, uh, uh, Peter's preaching the first Christian sermon in history. And as he's preaching in Acts chapter 2 in the, street, in the streets of Jerusalem, uh, he points out that King David, one of the greatest people in Israel's history, lived, died, and was buried. And he points out that his tomb is still with us. You can just go down there, everyone knows where it is, and his body is still in the grave. Even the great ones of history, like King David, when they're buried, they stay buried. That's just a sad fact of human life as well. It is the end when you're buried. David was truly buried. And he stayed buried. Now Peter points out in that sermon that Jesus was truly buried. He died a human death and entered into a human grave. Just like millions of people all over the world have done before that time and have done since. Jesus Christ was truly buried. He lived and he died and he was buried as a human being, just like you and I. In a sense, uh, the sadness of death and burial, he shared fully with us. He fully shared in that great tragedy of human life. Now, this is the first part of a great contrast. Now, of course, we're going to get to the contrast later on. We're just dealing with the burial this morning. But we need to see that Jesus was buried just like us because he was a tr truly a human being. And the final thing to say under this theology is it seems that Jesus' radical new perspective on burial brings, us, uh, brings people something to say at the graveyard, something to say at the graveside. 
Uh, Matthew chapter 8, when he called upon that man to leave the dead to bury their, their own dead, um, Luke tells us that same, that same story, but he has a little bit of a difference to it. In chapter 9 and verse 60, chapter 9 and verse 60, we read this. So the man says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So here he is thinking about the grief of burying his father. Jesus says, no, as for you, leave the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Here is something different, something to say at the, uh, at the point of burial, it seems. Jesus wasn't just breaking social convention for the heck of it. He brought a completely new moment to this world, a reality that brought so much good news to our dying world that it just had to be proclaimed even with a death in the family. And in fact, especially with a death in the family. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now the real significance of this we'll keep unpacking as the day goes on. But, uh, but what I wanted to see under our theology, Jesus Christ was buried. And because, uh, because he was buried, human burial can never be the same again, especially in light of what happens next. There's some theology. Now what about some life lessons for us? Does the New Testament draw some life lessons from Jesus' burial? And the answer is yes it does on a couple of occasions. Here I've got four things to say. Um, I won't be saying too much about them but it'll at least point you in the direction of where to go to find um, some of these life lessons from burial. Romans chapter 6 is one place. Romans chapter 6, so you might want to go there. Standing next to graves is a sad fact of human life. Sometimes we bury someone old, sometimes we bury someone far too young. Sometimes it's an acquaintance, sometimes it's a friend, 